July 17, 2022. Let's talk this morning about the minhag to not eat meat or drink wine during the nine days. I, met, I mentioned and I call it a minhag purposefully, and I talk about it today as well in Shabbat Habitamuz, which is long before, the, well, not long, but it's before the nine days, purposefully as well. And I mention in this context that the class is not a halakha class per se, but a development of halakha class, which means to say we're going to try to understand where this minhag originated, how it developed, and in turn, try to understand something broader about halakha, a concept and idea that we've returned to uh, on more than one occasion of the course of these classes. First and foremost, where is it mentioned in its most uh, popular sources, this minhag? Harambam here in source number one in his Perekeh Vilchot Ta'aniyot Halachavav mentions, quoting from the Gemara initially, Mishiyikanes Av Mema'atin Besimcha, when the month of Av enters, when we, when we enter the month of Av, we are mima'et b'simcha, which means to say our activities, our joyful and happy activities, we begin to minimize and we do less of them. On the second line here, toward the end, it says, Ukvar nahagu Yisrael, there's already a custom, says Harambam, of Am Yisrael shelo le'echol basar b'shabbat zo. Harambam is talking about during the week in which Tisha B'Av falls out, which means to say, much as we have specific halachot in Shavua, Shehal Bo specifically Sfaradim, generally speaking, that's all our minhagim. For Harambam, this minhag of abstaining from meat and not drinking wine by extension uh, is specifically and only during that time period. Harambam doesn't even mention wine. He only mentions meat and he only mentions it during Shavua, Shehal It's not what most of us do, although I'm sure you could find some individuals, I'll mention already from our last source, Yemenites uh, don't have any of this custom with regards to their practice. So there are, as could be expected when it comes to custom and practice, many different ones. We're trying to figure out and to piece it together where they originated. But that as the perhaps most popular source, when you look at halakha books, you think about Harambam, Harambam's statement is already mentioning this, and there it is. Magid Mishneh, one of the major commentaries of Harambam, uh, a, a, a Middle Eastern Spanish uh, influence one, you could tell even by his name. Hamin Hagazeh, lo pashat barasot elu achilat basar. So we specifically and only have this on the eve of the fast. Well, that's a straight on the page of Harambam. Shohanaruch, how does he mention this? Again, before even deriving its sources before we're dealing with uh, the last uh, 900 or so years, or the last 500 or so years. Shohan Aruch here in source number three. Shohan Aruch in Siman Taf, Kof, Nun Aleph, in Sa'if Tet. V'yesh no'agim shelo le'echol basar v'lo l'shot yayin b'shabbat zo. There are those, he's quoting from Harambam. In the week of Chabab, don't drink wine. There we have that mentioned, and don't eat meat. Some have it even prior to that. We'd call that the nine days, beginning on the first of Av. And some even from, well, today. So that's why it's perhaps appropriate for today to talk about this. Shohan Aruch has it as his third type of custom with regards to not eating meat or drinking wine. Again, where did this all come from? If anything, not from Gemara Talmud Bavli. Because Gemara Talmud Bavli here in source number four in Masechet Ta'anit and Daf Lamed Amud Aleph, the closest it comes to it is 
all it comes to this practice and custom, and that is Tanya Beraita Hasoed Erev Tisha Be'av. If a person is eating on the eve of Chabe'av, if the person, the man or woman, are going to have another meal that day, it's permitted to eat meat and to drink wine. If that's your last meal, what we would call today the then and only then, so of all the customs we've seen, aside from the one that said in Magid Mishneh, we don't have such a custom, this is by far, the Gemara statement is the most lenient, it's specifically and only the Se'udah HaMafseket, which has that one we can already make sense of. If the idea of eating meat and drinking wine is En Simcha Ela Bebasar as the Gemara says in Masech Pesachim, if joyfulness, if our way of rejoicing is through meat and wine, well, as we're having that meal that ushers us into this day, perhaps and specifically and only then, says the Gemara, it's inappropriate to be eating meat and drinking wine. But no mention, if anything, from the omission, from the statement explicitly in the Gemara, that if you're having more than one meal on the eve of Chabeav, your meal beforehand, not the meal right before the fast, you can eat meat and drink wine. Clearly, you're eating and drinking those foods and drinks throughout the three weeks, nine days, Shavua Shehalbo, so when and how did this minhag originate? And so that, for, my, for our purposes, will be the trajectory of this class, not to talk about our practice. Our practice, I think, is somewhat straightforward. There is a mahloka between Sfaradim and Ashkenazim with regards to specific details even today. As I mentioned, Yemenites until today. But generally speaking, Syrian Jewry, I'm sure you could listen to uh, Minhag of the Week or something uh, uh, of that sort to be able to detail fuller with regards to different kihilot. The Syrian Minhag, as I know it, is nine days. We don't eat meat, we don't drink wine. So that's in terms of practice. Origin will be for us perhaps most fascinating. Take a look here in source number five, Sefer Hamanhig. Among several Rishonim, I quoted a few. Sefer Hamanhig, his name was Ra'avan Hayarhi. Because he came from a place that was known as the Moon Place. Uh, we call it Lunil. It's in southern France. So it's Yerach. Anyway, Ravan from Provence, from southern France, writes the following Katav Rav Haizal. Rav Hai is one of the Geonim. So this is pushing ourselves back several hundred years before Harambam, and that's who he's citing from. Interestingly, he's citing from Talmud Yerushalmi. Of course, generally speaking, for our purposes, we're usually analyzing the classes, the Dafyomi, uh, Limud, and so forth, is Talmud Bavli, uh, more neglected until Art Scroll has now uh, made their campaign to recapture uh, Talmud Yerushalmi. More neglected is Talmud Yerushalmi. Who studies Talmud Yerushalmi? Who proudly talks about studying Talmud Yerushalmi? Maybe it's the cherry on top. Maybe uh, in research you go through it. Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky, who made a siyum on Kola Torah Kula every year, he studied Talmud Yerushalmi, proudly so. But most people, most scholars, that's not what they're involved in. Even scholars are not involved in. Anyway, uh, you'll see that's significant, my comment on it, because that's been for quite some time. Uh, Rav Haigon cites from the Talmud Yerushalmi, from Pansechet Ta'anit, Masechet Pesachim, where it says, Amar bizeira nishaya, nishaya milashon, nashim, the women, de nahigan, who have the custom, de la lemishta hamra, to not drink wine, and to not eat meat, 
עליל עד אפוקי תעניתה מנהגה שבו פסקה אבן השתייה. So first and foremost a custom of women from the first of the month until the ninth to not eat meat, to not drink wine because concludes this statement in Talmud Yerusham in the name of Rabbi Zi'ira because then at some point, maybe then the first of the month Paska Evin Hashetia, the Evin Hashetia, the foundational stone, ceased. Hard to fully understand what that means. What's the association to eating meat and drinking wine? Well, there does seem to be a play on the word. Shetia and Shetia might be a play on the word. What is this Evin Hashetia? We will talk very briefly about it as we go along, but there are many Midrashim that talk about this. I'm sure Gabby could fill in how neighboring cultures and societies have similar concepts, of course, but the tradition amongst the rabbis is there's a, a place in Makom HaMikdash where from existence sprouted forth. That's the place that's known as Evin Hashetia. And this stone, the Gemara even tells in the Midrash, was once pulled up and the world began to flow with water and we were going to have another deluge, another flood. That's this Evin Hashetia. That it ceased to exist is a little hard to understand. But of course, in context, it means that's the time that destruction, so to speak, really came into effect. Okay, that's significant in, it, in its own right. It means maybe the shitia, the drinking of the wine, is a primary thing with regards to Evena shitia. What's with the women? This is only women, not men. I don't know, it's going to make my life a little bit easier. And my mom's you know, here, happens to be the only woman in the class, but it sounds like you're going to be the one who's in trouble and the rest of us are going to be feasting unless you're making a siyum. Uh, anyway, so that's the statement here from Rav Hai Gaon from Talmud Yerushalmi. If we were to suffice with this, again, if anything, it's the earliest we've gone back. There's a bunch of questions with regards to mention specifically of women, Furthermore, with regards to the Evan Hashetia, there are others who cite from this Talmud Yerushalmi, and I'm purposefully not yet opening to our Talmud Yerushalmi as we would have it today in Mahazor Vitri. Mahazor Vitri was a student of Rashi. Uh, so we're going back some several hundred years as well, and a uh, student of, and he put together a, a compendium of sorts with regards to Minhagim and Tefilot, Talmud Yerushalmi, he cites, Amar Mor, that's a little bit different, Bene Nashedidan, the women of ours, Delashateh Hamrami, Shivasar Betamuzad Shabav, all right, so this custom that he has from Talmud Yerushalmi, it appears, it's from the 17th, our third opinion in Shohan Aruch, Minhagahu, all right, that's a proper minhag. Rov ha-geonim nahagu shelo lecho basar velo lishtot yayin, mishinichnas av atishabav. So he's already extending it. He says the geonim, the majority of them, Again, those, are those who preceded the medieval period, who had academies in Israel and in, in, ba, in, in Bavel, uh, now it's including men as well, it appears, not to eat meat or wine from the first of the month. V'yesh maktimin, and even from them, some went from Yodzayin betamuz. Uh, getting a little bit closer to understanding, but still deficient with regards to our sourcing. See, here's where the cracking point comes. Here's where the, uh, the tipping point with regards to analysis comes. 
and it will not be our absolute tipping point, but it's an important one to be mentioned and to take into account with regards to understanding this minhag. Uh, the first, to the best of my knowledge, to point out, not from this Or Zarua in source number seven, but more specifically from Talmud Yerushalmi as we have it, was Professor Saul Lieberman. Professor Saul Lieberman in his book, Yerushalmi Kipshuto, and then really highlighted and advanced in the book Minhagei Yisrael by Professor da, 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 Rabbi Daniel Sperber, um, uh, they make the following claim and point out something very sensitive with regards to the text of this Talmud Yerushalmi. I want to remind you again that several issues we had with regards to it. Number one, the connection to Evan Shetiyah. If you want to say it's a time of mourning, I understand. But you specifically mentioned for this law, as opposed to any other law, because the Evan Shetiyah ceased during this time period. It's not about meat and wine, per se. And number two, what's with the women involvement, Orzarua, Orzarua comes a bit later, um, as, uh, one of the Talmidim of Hasideh Ashkenaz, that means it's early 14th century, um, in Vienna, if I'm not mistaken. He makes the following claim, So that statement we saw in Harambam, he will cite from Harambam. The custom is, no meat and even no wine. And we have something we can lean on to support this custom. It's not just a custom that sprang forth without any foundations in text. He's going to cite the same Talmud Yerushalmi. Okay, now. Umihu. That's that, that much we, we were familiar with. Ravnisim Gaon. Ravnisim Gaon, another one of those rabbis from the time of the Geonim. Logaras. Girsa means the wording, the proper wording. His wording in the text of Talmud Yerushalmi did not say the word lemishte hamar or hamra, which we translated as wine. That's the Aramaic translation of wine. Elagaras, rather it read instead lemishte Amra, and if you speak like a Svaradi or a proper Ashkenazi, you know that an Ayn and a Het are both guttural letters, and as a result, they could be, if you're a little bit not clear with your diction, they can a little bit be confused. They could be confused in typesetting, or they could be confused in scribal errors as well. To confuse the Het and the Ayn, Hamra, which means wine, Amra, which means wool, is to make two altogether different statements. Limishte amra is milashon sheti ve'arev. Sheti ve'arev is a reference to um, waft and woof. Is that the way we say Woof and waft. Right. Weft and woof. All right. I, I know what it looks like. I could say it in Hebrew. I can't say it in English well. I'm going to call sheti ve'arev. Now, effectively, what we're referring to is the way you would weave. You would weave in two directions. That's the way that you're weaving. Now, the word sheti ve'arev, but the first word is sheti. Sheti milashon lemishte. It means to place and to straighten out your loom for weaving. And amra is a reference then to wool. The statement then for Rav Nisim Gaon in Talmud Yerushalmi has nothing to do with wine. It has nothing furthermore to do with meat. There was no mention of meat in his Talmud Yerushalmi. Guess what? There's no mention in our 
probably best Nosach Gersai Yerushalmi if you were to open to the standard one today in source number eight, Nishaya. We now might understand, although I want this to be open to all, if it's your thing or your child or your father's thing or your brother's thing, to be involved in weaving and sewing, great. But generally speaking, women are more involved in that. Nishaya, the Nahagan. No word over here, hamra, no amra, no nothing. It just says min alil minhag shebo pasak even hashit even Now, the statement of even shetia might also fit in. Why so? Again, what have we mentioned thus far? We started with a long-standing minhag, down to the back, back to Harambam, long before Harambam, several hundred years, the Geonim mentioned not drinking wine, not eating meat, at the very least during this time period. We then developed, we went forward a few hundred years, where many of the Rishonim, uh, the Ashkenazic but Sephardic ones as well, begin to be sourcing this from Talmud Yerushalmi. We had a few questions. We looked into Talmud Yerushalmi a little bit deeper. We fine-tuned it with regards to the actual wording, and it appears as if it never said what is purported to, have, to it having been said, stated. Rather, what it talked about was not weaving clothing during this time period, not crafting something new during this time period, which makes a lot of sense, not engaging in the craftsmanship of new clothing that you'd be enjoying during this time period. What's the connection then to Evin Shetiyah? A very clever connection. Before that very clever connection, lest you think this custom is fully lost, right there in Siman Tafkof Nun Aleph, Shohan Aruch, that's the source we started with in source number three, our Rabbi Yosef Karo, who mentioned in Saif Yod Aleph, or Saif Tet, right after this, not to eat meat, not to, eat, not to drink wine. As right before that, you should know, Nasheh Denaget, Delal Mishteh, Amra He cites the quote, proper version of Talmud Yerushalmi over here. Fascinatingly, he has both statements from a single source. It appears. He's making the claim that I have the corrupted version, no drinking meat and, or eating wine, but I have the, quote, proper version, don't be involved in aligning your spools of yarn and thread in order to go forth with this craftsmanship, women specifically, because women are involved in that. What's the connection to Evin Shetiyah then? Well, the Gemara in Masechet Yoma, for example, makes the following claim. Tana, I'm at the end of the line. We could look at the beginning. Evin Hayatasha Mimot Nevi'im Rishonim. Interestingly, this Gemara says there was a stone in that place where, again, existence sprouted forth from, from the time of the early prophets. Ushetiyah Hayatanikret. It was known as quote-unquote shetia, we call that foundational. Gavoa min ha'aris shalosh etzbaot, specific height. Tana, another statement from the Tanaim. Shemimena hushtat ha'olam. The world's foundations were, were born out of that. Still not fully explained to us, uh, unless you're going to tell me something. Well, here it is. It says that source number 10. Yesh omrim, it's a midrash agadol, shebara olamo, it should say, sheti ve'arev. There are those who describe God's craftsmanship of the world in, so to speak, this weaving fashion. It means the even me'ekan hitril. Where did he begin crafting, weaving the world and letting it sprout forth? Me'even shetiyashim, mena ushtata olam. If you have this, if you have these interpretations, 
it calls into question, and that's really where we hit our, our crisis mode in these sorts of classes, our custom for over a thousand years, or maybe over 13, 1400 years, of not, at the very least, of not eating meat and not drinking meat, or, and not eating meat and not drinking wine during this time period. Wait a second, our sources, if we trace them backward, seem to suggest somewhat clearly for us that that's a mistake. What should our reaction therefore be? That's what I'd like to talk about. Now, uh, before we go onward, just for, for excitement, to adding to this point, Professor Sperber, as I mentioned, much of what we've mentioned thus far is really his claim based on, Dr., uh, based on Professor Lieberman's analysis. He throws in as well, listen to this, I mean, it just makes it even better. The Gemara Masechet Eruvin and Dafnun Gimala Mutbet says, you know, the people from Galil, of course, in Israel, they don't know how to speak properly. You want to know how so? There was a person from the Galil. He was walking around and he was saying to people, Amar leman, Amar leman, who has Amar? Who has Amar? Amru leh, they turned to him and they said, we don't know what you're saying. Gelila'ah she you're a silly, a, 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 a dumb a, a Galilean. Hamar lemirkav? Are you looking for a donkey, a hamor, or are you looking for wine? Your diction, your ability to pronounce it is confusing us. Furthermore, amar milbash, are you looking for wool to wear, or imar are you looking for some sort of goat to, to, come to, to, to go with? In other words, very clearly, the Gemara says, if you don't speak clearly, amar and hamar, become confused, which seems to potentially have been the issue over here. Again, I pause you in this context, as I have on many other occasions, to question our practice and to therefore question and to decide, well, what's the direction we should go in? Should we change the practice? Should we continue the practice? Shohan Aruch says to do both. How can you make such a claim? And the suggestion that we'll make now, as we've made in the past, goes as follows. We made it just two weeks ago as well. It goes as follows. With regards to customs of the nation, customs of Am Yisrael, which have become ingrained because of their long-standing practice, in my mind, in the minds to my knowledge, of the vast majority of those who have determined halacha and understood it over the course of hundreds of years, it goes like this. Those are the standards with which we continue to practice. What we've done is what we are going to do, but that makes our religion silly. If it's based on a scribal error, if there's a mistake along the way which led to this, that's nonsensical. And the answer, therefore, the next stage is, if we've accepted this minhag Yisrael, so to speak, extreme statement, the next statement is you now need to find. It's necessary and absolutely important to find a rationale. If you stop that, well, it was a scribal error, but I do it, and raise your hands in despair, you failed the system. You need to instead inject, understand, make a certain relevancy to your time and place. And that's, in my mind, what our history has indeed done, starting with, for our purposes, source number 12, 
Be'ur Hagra, right there in Siman Tafkof Nun Aleph, to Shohan Aruch, that's Gaona Vilna, Rabbi Eliyahu ben Avraham Vilna. He makes the following claim. He says, you want to know really why Shohan Aruch, what this custom's origins are? He says, it's a Gemara in Maseche Bava Batra. Bava Batra. You're following the sources? Gaon Mi Vilna knew the sources much better than any of us ever will. What are you talking about? It's not Bava Batra. It's Talmud Yerushalmi. He says, listen to the Gemara Maseche the Gemara Masech Bava Batran Daf Samech Bet describes how after the destruction of the Mikdash, there was a sect of people, the Pirushim, who began to overly mourn the destruction of the Mikdash. And they began to, uh, to, to withhold the urge, temptation of meats and wines, and they wouldn't touch them at any point. Forget about from the 17th of Tammuz, forget about from the 1st of Av, and they wouldn't at any point. Rabbi Yohanan says the Gemara approached them and says to them, if I'm not mistaken, sorry, not Rabbi Yochanan, Rabbi Yochanan is much later, Rabbi Yoshua approaches them and says to them, guys, what are you doing? They said, destruction of the Mikdash, we're going to eat meat and drink wine. Do you know what we did with meat and wine in the Mikdash? In the Mikdash, we slaughtered the meat, we libated the wine, we did Nisuchayayin, we did Hakravat Basar. We're going to now eat it? Says Rabbi Yoshua very cleverly to them, no more bread, guys. Why no bread? We had Korban Menachot in the Mikdash. All right, they responded, says the Gemara, we'll eat fruit. No, guys, in the Mikdash, you had Bikurim, first fruits. No first fruits any longer. No fruits can you eat either. Their response is, maybe we can eat the uh, fruits of others that don't belong to us. You wouldn't do Bikurim on them. So, all right, he accepted. He says, but maybe we shouldn't drink water, he says to them, which, of course, is impossible. Why so? We used to do it over the course of Sukkot. Says the Gemara, Rabbi Yoshua, therefore took this as an opportunity to teach them a lesson. Says we're not going to forget the destruction of Mikdash, Yevsha. However, what we cannot and may not do is lihit abel, two lines from the bottom, yoter midai. We can't overly mourn this destruction. Now that's a very telling statement. He doesn't define for us what overly mourning is and less than overly mourning. Certainly the Gemara goes on to define and says that there were therefore customs of not finishing your home in a specific fashion. You know, today we have Shohan Aruch records it and we have specific ways of leaving a la mikdash. But fundamentally the Gemara says there's an appropriateness of striking the balance between not mourning at all and overly mourning and that's what he suggests to them. Gaon Mivilna therefore is suggesting that the custom which developed, whether this was quote unquote its original intent or not, to, 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 to stay away, to prohibit as a custom eating wine and drinking meat, we should understand in such a fashion. We're not going to stay away from it year round any longer. That's the Hitabel Yotemidai. Instead, well, from the 17th of Tammuz, instead from the 1st of Av, instead, as Arambam says in Shavuot Shechalbo, instead on the day, I mean, each one of these circumstances is an interpretation in my mind of regrouping. Even if that's not my absolute source. Even if the Talmud Yerushalmi's wording was corrupt, that's not going to change my practice. Right, but what are we going to do with Evan Shetia then? What are we going to do with women and this practice? 
So again, um, I don't need to resolve that because I can tell you Talmud Yerushalmi is the corrupted version, quote unquote, and we're nonetheless going to practice this. Alternatively, the claim could be made that Talmud Yerushalmi, maybe there was an alternative reading of it. How so? Well, the Gemara in Masechet Sukkan, Daf Memtet, Daf Memtet Amudav, Nan Masechet Yomah, which we read earlier, which talks about this Evan Shitiyah, talks about it in the context of something called Shitin. Shitin was on the altar, on the Mizbeach. There was a place for the wine to enter into. There was a space over there. Now that word shitin is somewhat reminiscent, somewhat, I mean that one was for you, it somewhat uh, reminds me of something that reminds me of that word shitiyah. So potentially the word even shitiyah in that context could maybe should be, according to another interpretation, defined as it's the rock where the wine was once libated, which means I can read back to that Gemara and say, I'm uncertain. Rav Nisim Gaon, I know your Nosach, your Gersah, but it appears Rav Haigon had a different one. Give me a second on the women part. I'm not going to fully solve it, but I'll give me a second. I'll I'll make it a little. I'll get a little bit closer to it. A Bet Yosef in source number 15. That's Rabbi Yosef Karo cites from Kolbo. Kolbo is a German anonymous work, and in it, as among other sources, is the easiest place at least without any books, and furthermore, Bet Yosef is an easy place to cite from. He cites from Kolbo, and says, Kolbo, you want to know, Katava Kolbo, yesh nimna'ima achilat basar mishinichnasav, lefi she'en b'simchai l'bebasar. So that's the initial knee-jerk response. The reason we don't eat it is because that's a joyful activity. Katav b'shem harav rabbenu asher, she'ta'am hanimna'im mibasar yayim mishiv'a asar betamuz, mepene, shebo butal hatamid. You may have recalled, you may have noticed this morning uh, as one of the five things that took place during, during, during leading up to the destruction on the 17th of Tammuz was we stopped at that juncture being able to sacrifice the Korban Tamid. The Korban Tamid, of course, came from meat as the extension. In turn, maybe there was an effect on the wine libation. Is this the absolute sourcing I would argue not. What is the sourcing? As we've made clear, either a corrupt sourcing or this just was a developed custom. What do we do in such a circumstance? We regroup. We determine how could this be relevant. As said for us, Gaon uh, Vilna, well, it's appropriate for not overly uh, mourning, but maybe this is a time period to do the mourning that we could have done throughout the year. As says Beit Yosef in the name of uh, Kolbo, maybe it's a time period during which we focus on the things that were lost in that respect. Okay. That much we've kind of pushed forward on. We're still a little stuck. And again, we don't need to resolve the Talmud Yerushalmi Gabi, but it would be very nice if we could, with regards to the women. If we suggested, as Professor Lieberman did, as uh, Daniel Sperber did, if we suggested that this was all about uh, a spool of yarn, so we understand the women mentioned. If it's not, how would we resolve this? Kolbo in source number 16, and then 300 some odd years later, in Sheilot Teshubot Maharshal, each mention that the custom that was prevalent in their time was specifically and only for women not to be eating the meat and drinking the wine. Fascinatingly, they developed it and had it as specifically related to women. Why would it be women to the exclusion of others? Not fully clear, but the suggestion of some would be, as I, as I recall once reading, that they were oftentimes not fasting on Shabbat. 
As a result, uh, they were, they were the, the birthing children, they were involved with children in some way or fashion. As a result, for them, quote-unquote, to compensate their loss of Avelut, a true Ashkenazic vision on this, in this uh, context, they made certain for the women to have added restrictions with regards to this. Now, piecing this all together, what have we led up to? Very clearly, I think, we saw the origins for all intents and purposes with regards to this not drinking wine or eating meat during this time period, 17th, 1st, and so forth. We saw that it comes from this Talmud Yerushalmi, which we had a lot of questions about, and we resolved with a different girsah, which seems to be perhaps the proper girsah. We then bounced back and said, so then what are we doing? Our response to that was, we're continuing a practice which spans back a thousand plus years. How do we make sense of that? Either we give a logical sense, well, and Mivilna and others called Bull. Alternatively, or in line together with that, we went back to that original source, to that Talmud Yerushalmi, and we said maybe we could read it with the word Hamra. Maybe the questions we asked are not per se leading us to a necessary conclusion that we confuse the Het with the Ayn, the Hamra with the Amra. Lastly, the Rishonim do as well mention, the late Rishonim mention Pesukim and quote unquote, they stretch them. They even quoted from Rabbeinu Sa'ad Yagon, even though in his commentary to Sefer Daniel he makes no such claim. From Sefer Daniel, you see at the beginning of Perek Yod of Sefer Daniel, the description is how he fasted, or rather he mourned for three weeks. What was, in, what was entailed in that morning? All right, some sort of bread. Three weeks abstaining from, most specific for us, meat and wine. Pause and think about that for a second. Three weeks, meat and wine. You know it. You know where we're going to go with that. It says Tur. Quote, uh, he's quoted in Yesh Omrim, uh, it, it, Bet Yosef in turn cites it from seemingly Hagahot Maimoniot, the closest source that we have to this is Tanya Rabatin, source number 21, citing in turn the name of Rabbeinu Sa'ad Yagon, potentially those three weeks that are referred to over there are the three weeks of 17th of Tammuz until the 9th of Av. Daniel, from the book of Daniel, the famous one, is the first one. Is that Peshat and Pesukim? Far from it. Why would they be referring to a stam three weeks in that respect? As a matter of fact, another opinion is that it was specifically during the month of Nisan. So then why is this coming up? How is this creeping into some sorts of sources with regards to our development of this? I mention again, I believe this is a custom which was trenchant, a custom which was accepted. Instead of very carefully and purposefully uprooting it and saying, I can't find any reason for it, we search for reason for it. We accepted it as something that bound us, that defined us as a people, even though it's not even a Talmudic law. It's certainly not a biblical law. We're not dealing with a din de'oraita, even a darabbanan takana of some sort. There's a minhag from the time of the geonim. We're struggling for the sourcing. The sourcing that we have from the geonim closest to the geonim seems to be a faulty one. We're instead, or as a result, searching for a way to supplement it in ways that are relevant to us. Look into the Ketubim. Model the behavior of Daniel. That's what we do in the, during this time period. Understand what the loss of the Mikdash is. Maybe that's what this is representative of. To conclude everything on an altogether different note, uh, it just brings us back to a class from five or so weeks ago. The first class of the season in the summer, we talked about this halacha of lotit We mentioned several vantage points on the 
specific uh, point of that class was to develop this halacha over the course of time from the Tanaim to the Emoraim and beyond with regards to their interpretation of this halacha which the Gemara mentions of lotasu agudot agudot don't make splinter groups with regards to halacha very difficult to pin down what's a splinter group in one synagogue in one city in one nation and so forth and we mentioned in that class this approach of Hacham Ovadia Yosef, which he's very steadfastly connected to, we talked about perhaps a, and a potential inconsistency within it, and his opinion is, basing himself on the words of Maran of Rabbi Yosef Karo in one place in Avkat Rochel, is that once you enter into Israel, from the time of Maran of Rabbi Yosef Karo, you are now a follower of Shohan Aruch. But wait a second, I come from Yemen. I come from Morocco, I come from Syria, I come from Poland or Hungary, it doesn't matter. Now you come from the Bet Midrash of Rabbi Yosef Karo. That was his understanding of it. He became the Mara de Atra at a particular juncture, basing himself on a halachic terminology, which is outside of the realms of Pesach halacha, more in terms of defining and determining a reality, but that's his statement as a result, consistent as he is, not only with regards to Ashkenazim, on this halacha, Let's pause for a second and appreciate what we mentioned at the onset of the class, that Yemenites never had, it appears, such a custom. Until today, don't have such a custom. We kind of understand that. This custom, which originated during the Gaonic time period, which Harambam at best mentions as a minhag in Shavua Shehalbo, so this wasn't a developed custom which they embraced. As a result, how could you force them to change? It says, Hacham Yosef, are you aware of the Yemenite individuals and communities now in Israel? Ahenu, it should say. Yosei Teman in his book, Hazon Ovadia, Shezahu La'alot La'arsenu Akedosha. Our Yemenite brethren who made their way to Eris Israel. Even though, over the course of this time, they would always eat meat. Except for that last meal, which we saw the Gemara Masechet Ta'anid and Daf Lamed, Once you implanted yourself in the land of Israel with the mindset of staying there, well, you know the you know what he's going to say. They now have accepted, knowingly or not, the mantle and and, and, and rulership of Maran Rabbi Yosef Karo Yishma Hakam Yosef Lekah and certainly those who are dwelling in Jerusalem, can you imagine, they look at Makoma Mikdash and it's not ours, and they're going to be eating meat and drinking wine. I only mentioned that as an addendum to the class then for another circumstance where Hacham Vadya Yosef, consistent as he generally is with regards to his methodology on this in looking to consolidate Jewry at the very least, Eres Israel Jewry. But for the purposes of our class, I mentioned again, we talked about a classic example of what we've returned to on many occasions over the course of these classes of development of Halacha. We talked about pitting sources versus custom and accepting practice. We talked about the next stage because if I'm going to accept the practice, but then it looks like I'm an Amnaval, I'm a nation which are doing silly and ridiculous things. The necessary next stage, which is consistently stepped into by Hachme Hadorot, is to then regroup. And to determine if we can't find the relevancy, if it's a drabanan, if it's a minhag, so then we'll then we'll push it aside. That does happen. We've mentioned many circumstances where that has happened, but oftentimes, 
oftentimes, instead of regrouping and determining to push it aside, we look at the acceptance of it. We determine how it transformed in our midst to represent something potentially different than it initially did. We mentioned it just two, two weeks ago or so in the context of Nitilat Yadayim and several other halachot. The hachamim did, and in my opinion, it's our responsibility to continue doing so, embrace the accepted norms and practices while at the same time feeling the onus of responsibility to find a relevancy to the time period, to find perhaps a novel and new interpretation to what was being practice. That's not suggesting that quote-unquote at the inception in the rabbinic mindset that's the reason for this. It is to determine this became a practice, minhag Yisrael Torahi, and in turn it's our responsibility to find a way to apply it from a rational, effective, relevant standpoint to us today. Baruch Adonai Le'olam. Amen ve'amen.